Turn with me to Acts chapter 21, verse 15. We're going to pick back up on our study of Acts. And last we were in this, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And today he arrives at Jerusalem and we're going to look at the events surrounding his, his return to Jerusalem. And uh, hopefully... I'm going to preach a short sermon on a long passage. You see there that I'm going to read almost two chapters. So the hope is, of course, the, the passage is what it is. The hope is that the sermon will be short uh, before lunchtime is over. I think it will be. Uh, but I'm going to do a bit of a flyover on this passage, and uh, hopefully we will draw some insights and you'll be encouraged today from God's Word. Uh, I'm going to read... Most of this passage, I'm going to skip some parts, and so you'll forgive me for that in the interest of time. Uh, some of it we've heard before. Paul's going to share his testimony again. He does three times in the book of Acts, and so I'm going to, I'm going to skip over that part since we've read it before. Uh, if you're offended by that, you can go read it afterwards. You're free to do so, but uh, if we want to get out of here in, in a reasonable amount of time, um, I'm going to have to skip a little bit. Let's pick it up. In verse 17, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. You recall he's he's already had three missionary journeys, planted a number of churches, gone back and encouraged those churches, and uh, has continued to spread the gospel uh, in his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what what, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. 
And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, and this is where he goes into his testimony and talks about his, his background and how he encountered the Lord, uh, how uh, he was struck uh, at the, the uh, road to Damascus, and how the Lord had called him to uh, be his servant. And then at the end of that passage... At verse 21, he says that the Lord told him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now they were listening, uh, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribute ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do, for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. 
What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. It's a long passage, but what a great encouragement at the end. I mean, Paul must have wondered, what in the world have I done wrong uh, to be the object of so much violence and hatred? But the Lord does appear to him and encourages him. Take courage. Uh, you know, he is affirming that, yes, you have done the right thing in coming to Rome and testi- uh, coming to Jerusalem and testi- testifying about me, and you're going to be able to do so in Rome as well. Well, as I read through this account before us today, uh, two questions came immediately to my mind. Maybe they came to your mind as well. Uh, First, why are Paul's opponents so violently against what he's preaching? What has stirred them up so much that that they want to tear Paul limb from limb and destroy him? That's the first question. The second is, why would Paul continue to put himself in this position, in this dangerous position, time and time again. He had been warned, as we looked at uh, previously, that going to Jerusalem was going to, arrest, was going to result in his arrest, and all, all throughout the Mediterranean as he preached the gospel, time and again he was facing uh, opposition and persecution and trials and tribulations and being stoned and left for dead and whipped and beaten, etc. Why would someone continue to do this? We're talking about questions of motivation here today. What motivates, first of all, someone to reject and oppose the gospel? What's behind that? And that's my first point. And the second point is this. What motivates someone to promote the gospel? So both sides of the coin. What motivates someone to oppose the gospel? What motivates someone to promote the gospel? Now first, the opposition. Why would someone oppose this message? What's so offensive about it? We have clues in the text. Verse, 21, uh, verse 20 of 20, chapter 21, James is explaining the attitude of the people in Jerusalem. They're zealous for the law, he says, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That would be the ceremonial law particularly and telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So uh, Paul, of course, is, is, is saying, yes, the law is not what saves you. It's not by uh, circumcision or following the ceremonial law or by uh, certain uh, Hebrew customs that a person is saved. You're saved by grace. You don't have to check off a list. You don't have to follow a, a set of rules that are, that are just uh, Hebrew customs. No, you're saved completely by the free gift of God in Christ. In verse 28, when uh, they see Paul and his his days are almost finished after he completes this Nazarite vow that he and those other men are engaged in, they, they cry out, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere, a little exaggeration there, but everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And then in 21 of, verse, of chapter 22, uh, 
when he says that God has sent me to the Gentiles, they're like, uh, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live, because he's going to the Gentiles with the gospel. Now the reason they felt this way was because the Jews treasured their status as God's people and found it difficult to accept that God was grafting in, to use Paul's language, grafting into the people of God, uh, the Gentiles, people from outside of their race, people who didn't follow their customs, people who, who didn't abide by the ceremonial law. And those Gentiles who were included, uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't live in places where there were the temple and, and do those sorts of things that the Jews did. Paul was preaching as he went about on his missionary journeys. He was preaching the good news that through Christ alone, by grace alone, anyone can become part of God's family. It didn't matter what your race was. You didn't have to be from a certain race. You didn't have to conform to a certain standard of behavior. You didn't have to meet a list of requirements. Free salvation offered to anyone who would. Have you ever gotten angry at someone because they got something for free that you paid for? You know, you, you, you paid a lot of money to get something and then you find out, well, they were giving it away down the road. That would make me mad. Well, that's what's going on with these people. Paul is saying what you are working hard to try to earn, Christ has given away for free. And they're saying, you're, you're just violating the whole system. You're, you're breaking down everything that makes us special and makes us feel good about ourselves. And really, that is the exact point. You can't earn it or deserve it. You can't work your way into heaven. It's something that Christ gives us a free gift. God's grace extends to anyone who will, anyone who will turn to him and accept this gift. Even people whom we assume are beyond God's reach, even to people we despise, and, and that was a real issue for them because they despised the Gentiles. And now Paul's saying that they're included in to us, <laughs> the holy people of God. How could that be? We don't want them. Well, we need to be careful ourselves not to fall into this type of thinking that salvation only comes to those who look like us and behave like us and we are no different than Paul's opponents when we look down on people who who don't conform to our standards even as Christians we can fall into this way of thinking you know the Lord comes into our lives and he begins to change us and we see the change and, you know, we may put off certain behaviors that we have engaged in in the past. And then some new uh, person comes along as a Christian and, and they aren't as advanced as we are in the faith. And we look down upon them because maybe they do some things that we don't do or we don't think they should do. And we become pharisaical in the way that we treat other people. It's easy for us to fall into and use our progress in sanctification as a, an opportunity for pride. We've forgotten 
that salvation is a free gift from God. We've forgotten that even our sanctification is by grace. It's by God. His work in us, not our own work. And these cultural behaviors that we often hold up as being uh, you know, the, the def- definition of what a Christian is. I've said it many times. You know, growing up uh, in a small church, small town, when I became uh, a Christian, I judged people because I stopped doing things and I didn't engage in certain behaviors they were doing. And, and I became a completely obnoxious little kid. I was in junior high, high school, but so self-righteous because I didn't go out and drink or I didn't date non-Christian girls or I didn't listen to that type of music or this type of music or whatever it was. We can make anything, any list that we want to create, we can use that to judge other people. When they're just cultural behaviors, that's what Paul is doing when James suggests, look, uh, when you go to Jerusalem, or as you're here in Jerusalem and you take this vow, do it along with other people so people will show that that it's, it's okay to, to do these things. They're just cultural things, and you're not opposed to them, per se. We know that it's not a way of salvation, but if Jews want to continue to do those things, it's perfectly fine. The only thing that we've required of Gentiles is that pastoral letter from Acts 15, that they refrain from certain practices that were very offensive to their Jewish brothers, like... Uh, eating meat with the blood and, and, and that sort of thing. 1 Corinthians 9 is the principle upon which Paul is, is operating here. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, or I become as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So you see here, Paul is... is, uh, Flexible when it comes to non-essentials. Things that might be religious practices, cultural practices, he can engage in them or he can not engage in them. The real question is, how can he best communicate to that person the love and grace of Christ? Romans 2.29, he says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 14, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about an inward change that happens uh, when Christ invades someone's life. It's not about rules and laws and, and behaviors. It's free grace. It's a free salvation that's given away. Now, behavior change comes after salvation, not before salvation. You know, you don't try to clean yourself up for God. You come to God and say, I'm dirty, I need to be cleaned up, please clean me. And that's what he does. Behavior change comes after salvation, not before. But often we want people to clean up their act for us. 
and conform to certain cultural standards that we have in order for us to consider that they're Christians or not. And that's wrong thinking. And that's the, the kind of thinking that was going on here. The thinking that, that's, that, uh, that, that salvation is earned and deserved. And that's what the people in Jerusalem, who were Paul's opponents, were all about. They felt like they had earned it and deserved it, and they were special uh, because of certain things that were even out of their control, and they judged others by that. Let's be careful not to do that. And rejoice in the fact that our salvation is not based upon anything about ourselves. It's based upon Christ and what he's done for us. Now, on the other side, what motivates someone to promote the gospel? Why does Paul keep time and time again uh, going into the very fire uh, of persecution, knowing, knowing that it's coming? as he'd been warned by, by the Holy Spirit and by other prophets who came into his life and said, you're going, to, you're going to be bound, you're going to prison. These things are going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Why would he do this? Those who have experienced God's grace are motivated by remembering that grace. Because of God's great love for them, they do whatever he wants. They are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, they are compelled by the love of Christ. That passage is wonderful. The love of Christ controls us, compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, there's been a lot of talk about this big lottery uh, that's been going on, something like 800 million, the biggest one ever. And yeah, I got friends who were uh, who were trying to win it all. And uh, I was thinking about that. You know, if 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 you went up to say the office and there was the main guy of the the lottery guru person, and he said, "Look, you don't have to choose any numbers or play this game." I'll just give you the $800 million for free. No obligation. Here, take it. And he, and he took it and he said, by the way, anybody that wants $800 million, I'll give it to them as well. Just tell them. Now, would you keep that knowledge to yourself? You've got $800 million. I mean, how much more do you need? You don't, you've got as much as you would ever spend in your lifetime. And why wouldn't you go and say, hey, look, there's a guy giving away $800 million here. You can, it's free. There's no obligation. Just he'll, He's giving it away. I mean, you would want to put it on the news and tell everybody about it. Sure. Well, that's what Paul's doing. Paul has received the greatest gift, something that's worth more than $800 million. You know, Jesus said something very interesting. He says, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his soul? And what he's saying there is your soul... Is, is more valuable than the whole world. That's a lot more than $800 million in the world. Your soul is worth more than the whole world. If you gained the whole world and lost your soul, you would not be well off. But if you gained your soul and lost the whole world, you would have everything, more than the world. So the soul, your soul, is worth more than anything. And Christ has come 
and died for your soul, paid the price for your soul. And he's saving it for free. He doesn't ask you to do anything in order to save it. He did, it all, he did all the work himself when he came and died in your place so that your soul could be cleansed. See, Paul knew this. He experienced this. He experienced that grace, and he just wants to share it with people. I mean, what else would motivate you to, to, to go to these people to try to share the gospel with them. You know, he's going through all these steps and these rules and laws that, that he doesn't really have to do, but he's trying to gain a, a hearing from these people. And then they, wanna, they start beating him and want to tear him limb from limb, and he, the, the authorities have to come in and rescue him. And as they're taking him into the barracks so they, he doesn't die, he says, can I turn and talk to these people some more? I mean, who does that? Someone who has some good news to share with people. And that's what Paul is seeking to do, to share this message of salvation, free gift of grace. You know, the, 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 the author here, Luke, throughout the book, he's showing us time and again things that are similar between Jesus and Paul. He also uh, shows similar, he records similar things that Peter does and Paul does. Same things. He's showing the parallels. What he's showing is that Jesus, even though he's ascended, he's still working. He's working through Peter. He's working through Paul. They are reflections of Christ in the world. Paul especially here. Several reasons. First, he's, you know, Jesus knew that going into Jerusalem was going to result in his death. He went willingly Paul does the same thing. Uh, second, uh, Paul is at the temple. Uh, he's, he's accused of teaching against the law and the place, and that's what Jesus was accused of as well, speaking against the temple. Paul was beaten within an inch of his life. Of course, Jesus was too. Uh, fourth, uh, the, the Jews apprehended Paul. He was dealt with by Roman law. But then he had a trial before the Sanhedrin. That was that latter part that we read. And then the, the crowd cries the same thing uh, against Paul that they did against Christ, away with him. And then Paul as well was accused of, Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple area, which was illegal. And the Romans gave the Jews the power to kill any Gentile that came into the temple. And Jesus himself in the same way, was attacked for eating with and receiving sinful people, tax collectors, Gentiles. Jesus did the same thing. And it's what, what Paul's doing. He's just reflecting Christ. He's being like Christ. Not because he's actually setting out to do that, but Christ has influenced him so much, that's the way it's happened. Paul is a follower of Christ. He's just coming after Christ, denying himself and taking up his cross and following him. He's becoming like Christ. It's not extraordinary. Paul, of course, he was called specifically to go to Jerusalem. You and I are not called, probably, none of us are called to go physically to Jerusalem and, and to preach the gospel there. Might be, I don't know, but odds are probably nobody here. But we are called to take up our cross and follow him. 
We are called to reflect him into the world, and that might call for us to, to go to a difficult place, to do something that is difficult for the sake of the lost, to put ourselves in the, the fire and the flood. You know, Luke is really showing us not that Paul is exceptional, but he's, that he's unexceptional, that anyone who follows Christ is going to suffer. Paul himself said it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is not something spectacular that Paul is doing. This is the Christian life. But the wonderful thing about it, and this is my final thought here, is that as we follow Christ into those difficult places and, and even suffer for his sake, it, it helps to show Christ to the world. Paul says something interesting in Colossians. He says, uh, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And Paul says, I, I'm, you know, when I suffered, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, there's nothing lacking in Christ's affliction, of course. He suffered fully and completely for sin. There's a parallel, the, the words that are used, there's a parallel verse in Philippians 2 where Paul is talking about Epaphroditus who brought an offering from the church in Philippi to Paul. And he says that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in their service to me. So the same language is used there. And, and interestingly, one of the commentators says, the gift, of, the gift to Paul that the Philippians were sending via Epaphroditus was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking, and what would have been grateful to Paul and to the church alike, was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible and Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. So to look at that verse in Philippians and think about the one in Colossians where Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, John Piper says this, Christ has prepared a love offering to the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking in nothing except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, people like Paul, like you and me, to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. When we offer our lives in the service of Christ, when we die to ourselves in order to promote Christ, we, by our life, physically present in some small way what Christ has done for the lost, suffering and dying for them. So we think about that and we think about what God has called us to. Yes, you know, we aren't called probably to go to a foreign land, but there's plenty of difficult places and difficult people in our lives who need to hear the free message, the, the, free gospel, the message of the free gospel of grace. Number one, do you value that message yourself? Have you turned to Christ? Uh, have you stopped saying, Lord, I'm going to try to I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to 
I'm going to start trying to improve. I'm going to make all these New Year's resolutions. Drop all that and just go to Christ. Okay? Drop all that business and go to Him and say, Lord, I can't fix it. Please help. That's all you need to do. Then you will experience God's grace and mercy because that's His character. Then you will have something to share. Then you will have something to, to tell people who are in the same position because we're all in the same position. We're all sinners in need of some serious mercy. And that has been provided through Christ. And that's a message for the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word as we always, you know, as I think about my own prayers, I, I conclude every sermon, Lord. Thank you. And I do thank you, Lord, for this word that encourages us and reminds us of your great love for us and, and your mercy to sinners such as we are and that, that you provide this salvation for free. It's not the one who wills, the one who runs, but on the Lord who has mercy. We thank you for that mercy because without it we would be lost. Lord, we pray that, that you would save us, and that you would help us not to be self-righteous, help us not to, to think that we can do it or that, or that we have done it. But Lord, we pray that we would just run to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.